so, a cursory glance at the state of this world in our times can make it seem like there's no cause for hope. Whether it be the news, social media, or just a passing conversation, the weight of the curse of sin upon this world is heavy. After any major natural disaster, we're reminded by the news that by 2050, we're not going to have Florida, basically. It's going to be underwater. So you better learn how to swim. And don't have any kids either, because apparently we're not going to have a hospitable planet to live on, allegedly. Now, these past couple of years has introduced a new age of lawlessness into our world that has ushered in mediated and state-issued drug use, legal theft, and legal murder under the guise of bodily autonomy. Now, to rattle off some statistics, nearly 10% of Americans suffer from depression, and their rates are increasing even quicker amongst teens and young adults. Around 20% suffer from anxiety, and in 2022, a research lab found that 55% of Americans reported they were extremely worried, as opposed to being hopeful. So this is the point. The hopelessness we are experienced, that we see in this world, experienced by the majority, is staggering, and is really easy to be discouraged. But as followers of Christ, we have plenty of reason to have hope. Not only to hope, but to rejoice. To rejoice in Christ and what he's done for us. So today, let me introduce you to a text that supports this principle. Let me introduce you to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We already read the text. Paul tells the believers in Rome who are under heavy persecution that they have a hope in the glory of God that is revealed in salvation. That salvation being accomplished through justification by faith, and by faith alone. So in a seemingly hopeless world, we can have immense hope knowing that Christ's sacrifice for us establishes peace with God, a relationship with him, and eternity in this presence. My title for today's message is A Sure Hope. And I got two simple points for you guys. The first point is rejoice in hope, and our second point is Rejoice in suffering. So on to our first point, rejoice in hope. In this passage, Paul is telling the Roman Christians and us today about salvation. So let's look at the verses, verses one and two. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So there's some terms we need to define. The first term is justification. So at this point in Romans, Paul has already expounded quite a bit on the topic of our legal standing in the eyes of God. So when I say legal standing, I mean whether we're innocent or guilty. Romans 1 through 3 tells us everyone is accountable to God and are under the law, the Ten Commandments. Whether they know the written law or merely go against their conscience, so Romans 2, 14, and 15, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So what we're being told is that even without an explicit knowledge of the, the law, the Ten Commandments, God's law is written on our hearts. Everyone has a God-given morality. But even with that, Romans 3 tells us this about humanity, verses 10 and 11. 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Because of our sin, we're morally bankrupt. We have no good to make anything we do or say acceptable to God that'll ever outweigh our sin. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Now, the phrase filthy rags is a really strong one in the Hebrew, and I feel like it's important for us to unpack. The Hebrew word we get filthy from is the word idah. Translated into the English, the word literally means bodily fluids from a woman's menstrual cycle. It's gross. The Hebrew word we get rags from is beged, which means rag or garment. Now, here's the point. In the eyes of a holy God, even our best outside of Christ is entirely polluted and ravaged by sin. Martin Luther, a 16th century reformer, once said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. Works outside of Christ that we use to get points with God are as disgusting to him as the filthy rags we just described. I'm not going to say what that means again because I feel gross saying it. R.C. Sproul, a theologian and pastor, once said, the Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or grace, grace, grace. The Bible says he is holy, holy, holy. Holiness, otherness, the utter perfection and complete transcendence over creation that God has. Transcendence meaning beyond and above all. That's God. Sin cannot be in his presence without atonement, without Christ's sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. But then we're told about justification. So I told you guys I would define it. Here it is. The definition for justification means being made right or being reckoned right. So in Romans 5, we're told we're made right with God by faith and by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the vehicle by which God has chosen us to be right in his sight. There's no other means of salvation but in Christ. So at the end of Romans 3, as well as immediately after the scriptures we're covering in Romans 5, we learn that this faith was purchased by Christ's blood. So justification is how we receive the benefits of the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is how a perfect God made a way for guilty sinners to be made holy in his sight. Not because of anything we did, but because of the perfect work he did on our behalf. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life we could never hope to live. He lived life serving and ministering to those around him, even those who rejected him. What an example. And eventually, he sacrificed himself by being crucified. And on that cross, Jesus bore the sin of those who would believe in him. And three days after this crucifixion, 
He came back from the dead to seal his promise of defeating sin and death. The blood spilled on that cross is what gives us life. So two things happen on that cross, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. On that cross, Jesus erased our debt, and on that cross, Jesus gave us his righteousness. If it was just erasing our debt, we would incur debt again. I mean, I'm sure all of us have paid off a card and then instantly used it the same day. Amen? (laughs) If our slate was made clean, we'd mess it up again. That's the truth. And if it was just Jesus giving us his righteousness, there would still need to be something to make us right in the sight of God because of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it succinctly. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, the Father made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So this wrath-satisfying atonement on the cross is afforded to us by faith. Faith, complete trust and confidence in Jesus is why we have peace with God. At one point, we were enemies of God. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, you're either for him or against him. Bible makes it clear. Going down to Romans 5.10, it says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? We no longer have to fear the coming judgment and his wrath upon the world because we've been declared righteous in Christ. Now let's talk about that wrath for a second. I've said the word judgment, wrath, forgiveness, salvation quite a bit, but I need to paint you a picture. So we've already established God is holy. God's holiness inspires in him A perfect sense of justice. That means all sin comes at a price. Sin is so serious to God that our natural death is a result of it. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Hey, here's your work. Sin, here are your wages. Death. But further than that, the Bible is replete with references of the second coming of Christ, as well as references to a place of judgment called hell. So this is our Lord describing the final judgment. This is gonna be found in Matthew 25, 31 to 34, verse 41 and 46. This is a long passage, so please bear with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. The first coming of Jesus 
brought forgiveness of sin. The second coming of Jesus will bring judgment of sin. Now, Jesus says this place of eternal fire is a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 18, 50. I can't tell you exactly what that means, but I could tell you it's not a pretty picture. Now, I'm sure a couple of you have burned yourselves. I mean, if you've ever done cooking, been near a fire. Can you imagine, excuse me, what it'd be like to, to be in a fire for eternity? Christ used a handful of names for hell, including outer darkness, but his most frequent reference to it was the fire. Upon our deaths, we will be taken up to judgment. Outside of Christ, that judgment will lead us to eternal destruction. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what we're saved from. We're saved from God's wrath. We are extended mercy from God because of God. It's, it's a mindful, it's, it's a mind-blowing picture. We're spared from the judgment of sin. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, Paul tells us, God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. And furthermore, we're told back in Romans 5, 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So not only does faith justify, but it also grants us grace. This grace, as well as faith, is a gift from God. So a simple definition of faith, I'm sure we've all heard, is grace's unmerited favor. This Bible's glossary defines it as unmerited favor, especially the free gift of salvation that God gives to believers through faith in Jesus Christ. Now for an even simpler definition, we can say grace is getting undeserved kindness from God because of Jesus undeserved kindness. This is what Paul means when he says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We, the undeserving ones, receive what Christ deserves because of his grace. And that all leads us to hope. Verse two, through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So because of our being made right with God, our justification, because of our having peace with him, because of faith in Jesus, no longer being enemies, because of grace, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can know without a shadow of a doubt that our salvation is secure this passage doesn't simply tell us we have grace. We stand in grace. Amen? Amen? Present tense. There is not a moment in your life after you're saved where you do not stand in God's grace. Not a single moment. As sure as the ground beneath your feet is, 
so is God's grace in your life. Now, how different would our lives look if we acknowledge we're always standing in the grace of God? Man, one day, on the day of judgment, God will glorify our earthly bodies and we'll be perfected. We will be in his presence eternally. That's all because of grace. All because of grace. On this passage, the ESV Study Bible says, those who are justified by faith have an unshakable hope knowing they'll be saved from God's wrath on the day of judgment by virtue of Christ's substitutionary death on their behalf. So this leads us to our second point. The text makes it abundantly clear that the hope of salvation is worth rejoicing over. Verses three to five tell us so is suffering. So let's look at the text. Verses three to five, Romans five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So suffering, trials, are reason for rejoicing. Now this sounds entirely backwards in a human sense, but this isn't the only time the Bible tells us to be joyful about hard times. James 1 tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And both James and Paul's reason are the same. Trials change you to be more like who God wants you to be. And being more like who God wants you to be is a great reason to rejoice. Amen? So what this passage isn't saying is, yippee, suffering. I love when my life is difficult and hard. Let's make sure my car breaks down today. That's, that's not what this passage is saying. <laughs> We're told to rejoice in trials for what it produces in us. In Paul's case, he starts off by saying, trials produce endurance. So endurance. Let's use a runner as an illustration. So if you're an undisciplined runner, you run quick until you're gassed and out of energy. If you train regularly, you learn that a steady pace means you'll go longer distances. And the more you do it, the further you're able to go. So we can imagine this endurance like a runner who's running a lifelong marathon, controlling their pace, being mindful of the road ahead, and pushing forward for the finish line. Now, this word in the Greek has some more definitions, more dimensions worth unpacking. The word translated endurance is hupomoning. It can be translated as perseverance, steadfastness, and patience. So the overall idea is dedication to take on whatever for however long for the sake of Christ. That's what trials produce in us. Next on our list is character. So to be a person of character is to be virtuous, having high moral standards and living life based on those standards. So us persevering in suffering will produce character because that's when we're tested the most. God builds our character through training, not through miracles, at least not all the time. <laughs> now, it's a difficult truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. By a show of hands, how many of you have prayed for patience? All right. Now, keep those hands up 
if after you prayed for patience, you were put in a situation where you needed to be patient? All right, you can put your hands down. <laughs> a prayer for patience gives us situations where we grow in patience. God trains us. I'll tell you, the prayer that God answers for me the quickest every single time, God, give me humility. Humble me. Same day, car breaks down. <laughs> Same day, I am shown my inability in something that I thought I was awesome at. In God's love and mercy, he humbles me and he humbles all of us so that we can be more like Jesus in an area of our lives where we are most unlike him. When times are good, it's easy to be pleasant and moral to people. It's easy to remember how to act right. It's easy to remember that nice Sunday school lesson about loving your enemy because you don't feel like you have any enemies. When you have nobody disrespecting you, hurting you, lying about you, it's easy to bless those around you. But what does Jesus say? Don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So it's not when we have all the things going for us, plus all the bills paid, plus the nice new car, plus success, that we follow the words of Jesus. It's especially true when we're going through tough times. If our Lord didn't have an easy life, why would we expect to have an easy life? The life of love, service, and purpose that Jesus lived is the one that he's invited all of us into. And that life leads to an eternity in his presence. So from suffering or trials to endurance to character, and we finally come to the end, which is hope. And it all circles back to hope because it always does. So hope, trust, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain outcome. Now, what's the Holy Spirit trying to communicate is the hope in this text. I'm very glad you asked. As some of us know, the chapter divisions and verses were added way further down the line after the scriptures were written. They were not present when the original texts were written. So we start in chapter five with a therefore. So let me show you what the therefore is there for. Romans four is what the therefore is there for. Romans four, we're told about Abraham. His faith was counted to him as righteousness, and he's the case study that Paul used to highlight that since the beginning of God's covenant community, Works were never meant to be the way by which one is saved. Romans 4.3 tells us, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So believed, faith. Going down to verse 18 of the passage, it tells us about Abraham's hope and what the hope was, as well as the hope that's produced through character. So in Romans 5. We're going to go to Romans 4, 18 to 21. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. This is the hope. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's the hope. We hope in God and his promises. God has the power and he will accomplish and fulfill his purposes. In our trials, God promises to be there with us. Psalms 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In our endurance, God promises to grow us to be more like Jesus. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In our character, God promises to bless our obedience. Deuteronomy 30, Moses tells us, obedience puts us in a position where God can bless us. And in our hope, we cling to those promises and receive the great joy that they are. John 15, 11, where Jesus is talking about all the messianic promises, tells us, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full, fullness of joy in Jesus. Those are all the promises of God for us that our joy may be in him and that our joy may be full. Now we arrive at verse five, where we're told hope does not put us to shame. So the NIV says, and hope does not disappoint us. So the idea behind the shame we're told about is that the shame experienced in judgment. So whether it be at the hands of others or at the hands of God himself, Other words to describe this are to dishonor or humiliate. That's the same word in the Greek. On this verse, the ESV Study Bible says, followers of Christ have no reason to fear humiliation on the judgment day, for they now belong to Christ. Oh, man, that's so good. This isn't the the only truth of shame before the eyes of God. That was a typo. <laughs> this isn't the only, so this is about the shame we experience before the eyes of God. But this most certainly applies to shame we experience before the eyes of man. We're no longer put to shame. This unshakable hope in God's promises revealed to us that we have no reason to be ashamed of the faith. Ephesians 3.12 tells us, through Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. So nowadays, it is easier than ever to shrink back and neglect a gospel opportunity. I mean, I know a lot of us have experienced it. That one moment where somebody tells us they're having a bad day, and it's just like, man, I could, I could tell you about Jesus right now. I could tell you about him right now. It's just like, oh, but man, you know, maybe, what if they're not going to like me afterward? What if they're going to think I'm judgmental? What if they're... What if, what if, what if, what if? On college campuses, we have courses that either completely accept every and any type of religious expression, regardless of how absurd some of the claims are, and say it's all true. Or we have professors who reject any and all supernatural claims and teach that truth is subjective, nobody has an absolute, 
and anybody who claims it is a fool. I'm sure most of us see the arguments online and how rampant the hatred is toward Christ followers. Ironically, the religion that says explicitly God is love, 1 John 4, 8, the attribute everyone is most crazy to ascribe to God is apparently bigoted, ignorant, and a hateful religion in the public sphere. As Christians, we can most definitely do a better job demonstrating our witness, but that's not the point. The point is, regardless of the slander, the animosity, and anything that the world has to say about us, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. When we have a clear view on the promises of God, we'll be able to take on all these things with the unshakable hope described in this passage because we know we have no reason to feel ashamed, humiliated, or dishonored. Shame and hopelessness have no place in the heart of a believer, especially because of how clear the text is. In just these few verses alone, God has told us we're saved by him out of complete love and grace. This is meant to put wind in our sails, gas in our tank, and energy to propel us to run the race with endurance till the end. If in your faith you experience shame, you need a solid grasp on God's promises. That's the medicine. Shame, look at God's promises. The only thing we do in submitting to shame is communicate to ourselves and to God, salvation wasn't enough. Now, another sense of shame some believers have, which is one I've seen, it's not too many, but they're out there. I'm too sinful. You can't save me. God, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm beyond redemption. Now, there are some who hold to this radical sense of shame that basically rejects God's mercy. If we say that we're beyond salvation, we're challenging God on the effectiveness of the cross. Let me tell you, the cross was, is, and forever will be more than enough to save sinners like us. Amen? Amen. Amen. The book of Hebrews has something to say about this. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. The former priests, former representatives, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's all he does in heaven for us. He is interceding for us on our behalf, because he saves to the uttermost. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, you, say I, us, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Our debt was on the cross. And then there was a tomb. And then the tomb was empty. 
Our debt is gone. It is all because of Christ. Totally erased. Christ is able to save to the uttermost, beyond all what we can fathom or dream of. Our hope is in Christ and his work, not our own, not anything we can do. And all of this is revealed through the Holy Spirit. God's love is received, cherished, and understood in light of us receiving his spirit. God pours it into our hearts, as the passage says. And again, I I will keep nailing this on the head. It's given. It is given. We can't earn it. The justification, the faith, the grace, and the Holy Spirit, which initiates all that work within us, is a divine gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Through justification by faith, we walk in the new life with Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, changes us through this relationship. As we keep in step with the Spirit, we grow in holiness, and he produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, which we took like two or three months to like study on Wednesday nights, if you guys remember that. That was fun. Galatians, 2, Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This faith we have is tangible and has significant effects upon our lives. Now, I have a silly illustration for you guys, so bear with me. If I told you that this pulpit would explode, if, if I told you I believe that this pulpit would explode if I touched it, and then I'd do this, what would you say? Don't say anything. I have an answer for you. Um, the only logical thing is to say that I don't believe. Or I'm a maniac and want it to explode, but we're going to ignore the second one for the sake of the illustration. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is faith doesn't change our situations. Faith changes us. If we know God has saved us to live in holiness, why would we decide to step to live out of step with what He has said? If God says in Psalm 1611, He leads us to the path of life. In His presence there is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And why would we go about looking for our deepest satisfaction anywhere else? in things that can't fulfill what they promise. If we know that his ways are higher, why do we still insist on following our own? The almighty God, the creator of the universe of life and the creator of all of us, stepped down from heaven in the form of Jesus to live, die, and be raised from the dead to purchase our salvation so that we can live in him, and for him. We're sinners. We've established that. We've established God judges perfectly, and his judgment for sin is the eternal fire of hell. Yet we're told that Abraham was righteous through faith. Abraham hoped in God's promises, and God fulfilled his promise to Abraham, and he gave him a son. And through that son, A nation was born, the people of Israel. 
within that nation, one man, a God-man, a divine man, was born of a virgin by the conception of the Holy Spirit. That man, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life. Jesus then sacrificed himself on the cross, taking on the sins of his people. On that cross, he died. And three days later was raised, conquering sin and death, so that whoever would place their trust in him, receive him as their treasure, and turn away from their sins, would receive eternal life, justification, grace, and peace with God. So to close, we've covered one of the key passages in the New Testament about assurance of our faith. Because of God making us right in his sight through faith in Jesus, we can rejoice in the hope of his promises. Because of God, because of the peace with God that was established, we can see the finish line. But that also offers us joy for the here and now. We stand in hope and grace that ought to propel us every single day Hope that our salvation is guaranteed and that he has, he does, and he will fulfill all his promises. We can also rejoice in our suffering because suffering leads us to perseverance in the faith. Perseverance produces Christ-like character. That Christ-like character gives us hope that leads to assurance in God and that he will do what he says he will in our lives because he's already done so much. God's message to sinful and broken people like us is that through faith in him, we can have assurance of salvation because that faith provides us peace with him. And all of this is available, as Romans 5 tells us, through our Lord Jesus Christ.